Hi, welcome to the Mother's Guide Through Autism podcast. This podcast is to inspire, support, and build community for mothers raising children with autism. I'm Bridget Shipman, the host and creator of the Mother's Guide Through Autism. This podcast has been inspired by my son, Joseph, who's been living with autism for the past 28 years. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jed Baker. Dr. Baker is the director of the Social Skills Training Project, a private organization serving individuals with autism and social communication problems. He is on the Professional Advisory Board of Autism Today, ANSWER, YAI, the Kelberman Center, and several other autism organizations. In addition, he writes lectures and provides training internationally on the topic of social skills training and managing challenging behaviors. He is an award-winning author of eight books, including Social Skills Training for Children and Adolescents with Asperger's Syndrome and Social Communication Problems, The Social Skills Picture Book, The Social Skills Picture Book for High School and Beyond, and No More Meltdowns and a few more books to add to that list. So you'll wanna check Dr. Baker's books out. They've been extremely helpful to Joseph and I. I also wanna mention that his work also has been featured on ABC World News, Nightline, the CBS Early Show, and the Discovery Health Channel. I am so very honored and excited to have and welcome Dr. Baker to our podcast. Thank you for having me, Bridget. It's good to good to finally meet you and 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 Joseph as well. Thank you. So I'm going to just dive right in with the beginning. Can you tell us your background and how you came to work with the autism community? Sure. Um, I was trained as a clinical psychologist. Um, worked my way through New York State's uh, public college systems and um, took a first job actually in New Jersey in this uh, inner city public school working with kids, kids who often didn't have uh, all the supports they needed at home, sort of tough backgrounds. And um, in that context, there were kids on the spectrum uh, who really weren't getting the services back in maybe 1991. And um, there was a, it was pretty sketchy in terms of supports for kids on the high end of the autism spectrum. Kids who had more classic autism with uh, minimal language, um, some services existed back then, but uh, some of the kids with more invisible, more subtle disabilities, the services weren't there. So I started creating these social skill groups and other kinds of services that we, they just didn't exist then. And uh, people started asking for copies of what I was doing. We had sort of created a manual that I had just loosely put together going to a, you know, Xerox copying (laughs) these social skill lessons and such. And so people started asking for it and uh, eventually got published. And then from there, I sort of took a job uh, at another school where there were uh, students who had really more cha- more language challenges. Uh, and we realized some of the social skills that we've been working on in my previous job weren't always applicable to kids who had a little bit more language challenges. 
and so we started taking pictures of, of these different sort of skill scenarios to uh, be able to show it through picture rather than just say it with words. You know, and I was continued on the field. So this is about 29 years ago. So over the course of the years, all the kids I'm working with, you know, they grew up and we then began writing uh, books for folks transitioning to adulthood. Then, of course, I had my own kids and um, I realized that's hard <laughs> to raise children. Yeah. Uh, and that's what caused me to write the book, No More Meltdowns. And eventually also a book called Overcoming Anxiety in Children and Teens. Just, you know, it's a combination of working with uh, my clients, but also just raising my own kids, feeling like parents need a quick guide for, you know, what do I do when my kid is melting down? Why are they melting down? You know, what, what if they know what to do, but their anxiety is so uh, immobilizing that they can't sort of uh, use a skill that we've taught. So that, that's where some of these other books came from. Yes, and, and I would have to say, um, you know, Joseph and I were, were fans of yours. You you really helped us uh, as Joseph was going through his teens. That that was a difficult time. You know, all the, the whole journey while you're um, going through living with autism, you know, has its challenges. And then when you get into the, the part with Joseph, his social skills, he wanted to be part of things and didn't know how. So uh, we used your your book for, for the teens with social skills and the pictures. And he was fighting to become independent then and didn't know how and still struggles with that to this day, actually. So you're, you know, I, I was a teacher and I would have lunch duty and I would watch my son. And as a mom, of course, it's heartbreaking. But then as an educator, you can just see all these areas that these kids need help with. And so the work that you're doing, let me just say firsthand as a mom and a teacher has, has really, really helped, uh, helped us in our community. Could, would you tell us how the social skills picture books work and why they are so helpful? helpful for the children with autism. Yeah. First, let me thank you for your, your nice remarks. And I think part of the sort of usefulness of some of the materials that we developed um, came from the fact that we were in schools and working with families and we didn't set out to write these books. What happened is we're, we're using all these materials, trying to figure out what will help our kids. And when we had stuff that was helpful, then they became books later. In fact, the social skill picture book was never meant to be published. I was in a district up in Bergen County in New Jersey uh, where kids were not ready for prime time, according to some of the, the, uh, the teachers there, that they were uh, developing some skills to be able to move towards much more uh, engaged, integrated um, inclusion experiences. And they had some difficult language. So the teachers there were telling me, uh, you know, when you're trying to explain these skills and then model and role play them, they're not always understanding your uh, verbal explanation. What if we took pictures uh, and showed them rather than just explain it to them with words, and then we can model it and role play it. So we started creating these picture books for the kids in that, in those uh, programs. And, um, and the pictures were really sort of right and wrong way to do uh, 
uh, particular skills, whether it's joining in play, start a conversation, um, how to how and when to interrupt, to ask for help, all kinds of things. And it was really the skills that were needed for those kids in those programs. So one of the things we found is when we used to really you know, work hard to try to get the attention of kids to try to teach skills. And what we found is, you know, we do these little picture books and then we'd say to the kids, well, it's your free time now, do what you'd like. And many of them would just go naturally to the picture books and start imitating what they saw in the books. Uh, and the teachers and I would look at each other and think, well, we're, we're killing ourselves trying to get their attention to, to learn skills. And now they're just doing it by themselves. And so it, we suddenly realized this was a really um, easier way and had great sort of motivational appeal to kids to be able to use these picture books. So we sent it out to a publisher and sure enough, uh, the, the picture book for young kids became one of the top 10 autism books in the country back then. Um, to our surprise, you know, and because it, it was never even meant to be published. And then, of course, a portion of the any proceeds went back to the programming for those kids back then. So the feedback we've gotten from parents like yourself is that, you know, this is a book that I don't necessarily have to, you know, sit down and force my kid to sort of learn or read. They, they kind of do it on their own sometimes. And in fact, now we try to get kids to make their own picture books. You know, there's a great app called Pictello. And Pictello is a, um, an app where you can sort of import photographs and import word callouts and thought bubbles and, and help people sort of create their own picture books. But the picture books that we have, both for young kids and the one for high school and beyond, are about you know, 30 or so skill lessons sort of ready to be ready to use. Um, and can and can give people sort of an idea of how they could then you you know use that format to go on and make their own picture books tailored to situations that they need to address. Yeah, I love that uh, because I asked Joseph because he used your your high, the picture book for the high school for the social skills and he I said well what what uh, do you remember about that you know that that's about ten. 12 years ago, and he said it was a nice, easy reference. And um, some of the things like what you were talking about uh, exactly is, uh, I don't know how to read people. I don't know when it's, when I can tell if somebody really wants to include me in a group conversation. All those things, those little social cues, you know, that are so hard. So he, that's exactly what he said about it. It's a, it was a nice, easy reference book. Yeah, well, the thing about pictures is they can, number one, they can make concrete what otherwise is sort of esoteric abstract information, you know. So you can stop the action with a photograph and read people's faces. You know, when I do this, how do people react? When I do that, how do people react? And you can sort of see it in photograph form. You can also see visually some things that often, you know, one has to sort of uh, just do in their head. So, example, what's the point of sharing for a young kid with autism? Like if you tell a kid to share from their point of view, you're just stealing their potato chips. But if you can see in a picture book that if I give up my potato chips, I get back chocolate covered pretzels. Oh, okay. Now I get it. There's, <laughs> there's yeah. something in it for me. And so these uh, invisible payoffs to social skills become much more visible and concrete through the picture book. So that was the point of those books. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, you know, thinking in pictures with Temple Grandin and, and some of those other references, it makes perfect sense. And it's, it's so easy, an easy idea, but yet it, it's a game changer. So um, I, and I, again, I can tell you firsthand that uh, Joseph used your book a lot. And again, as a parent, it's really pretty cool because like you said before, it was something that I could hand my son and he felt more independent and he learned how to problem solve using that book as well. Well, I'm so glad it had a positive impact on on, uh, Joseph and and for you as a parent. Oh yeah. You know, I've done work in support uh, groups and it's a, a outstanding tool. So again, thank you for that. Um, I do want to move to your book called No More Meltdowns, because as we were talking about earlier, this is something whether your child, because I also have a child who's not on the spectrum, and yes, he did have meltdowns (laughs) uh, as well, but you know, because in, in the autism community, I hear a lot from moms about these meltdowns, and as as our children get older and they have these meltdowns, you know, it, that out of control behavior is very scary. Yeah. Would you tell us about the book and share with us your best strategies that moms out there can start using with their children with autism? Yeah. Hopefully this won't be too long an answer because there's a lot of steps to thinking about challenging behaviors like meltdowns. And by meltdowns, we don't just mean out of control sort of anger, but it can also be um, when people shut down inwardly with anxiety and depression. Both are sort of emotional hijackings um, that happen when people feel overwhelmed. So the first order of business, so maybe I'll sort of carve this into into a variety of steps here. so, and maybe we'd look at sort of three steps to this. Step one is, you know, how do you help parents think about difficult behavior in a way that leads to better outcomes. And there's research on this, right? So that if parents are hopeful when they're confronted with really difficult behavior, they continue to do the things um, that they need to do to get to better outcomes. You have to sort of solve, you have to look at problem behavior um, in a solvable way and in a way that leads to practical solutions what we really talk about in the book is sort of understanding um, problem behavior, repeat problems, blow ups, et cetera, as uh, defined really as a gap between the demands you're placing on an individual and their ability to cope with those demands. If you see it that way, it's very practical. There's a couple of things you can do. You can modify the demands you're placing on, a, on an individual and you can improve their coping skills, get them ready for the things that trigger them. If on the other hand, you see it as sort of willful misbehavior, we often go down a discipline road where we want to then sort of punish our kids because they know better and yet they kept doing it. And the issue with punishment and discipline is it kind of works fine for regulated kids. If you're a logical kid, you get it. Mom's gonna be mad if I do this, I'll be in trouble, I better not do it. But if you have trouble with emotional regulation and you're not being logical in those moments, you're being instead hijacked by the Incredible Hulk, your your Dr. Banner brain isn't really all there. And at the moment, you're just the Incredible Hulk. Hulk is not doing some logical thinking. Hulk is really about fight, flight, or freeze. 
You know, when I'm threatened, I'm going to run, I'm going to hide, I'm going to shut down, or I'm going to, I'm going to fight. And um, if you try to do sort of a traditional discipline or punishment kind of approach there, um, the Hulk doesn't take well to threat. Uh, in fact, you will get more Hulk behavior, escalating problems. So the first step is kind of like moving beyond that traditional discipline to understanding when I have a repeat problem, let's not just keep going down the discipline road if it's actually getting worse for the Incredible Hulk. Let's instead think about, okay, what are the demands we're placing that kind of triggered this person into that Hulk-like behavior you know, and then how do I teach them to get ready for those triggers to improve their coping skills? So let's, so that's all step one to sort of how to think about this. Step two is like, what do you do with the Incredible Hulk when you don't even know what, what put them into that meltdown mode? So what helps the Incredible Hulk? Well, like I said, it doesn't help the Incredible Hulk to um, threaten them, to have military assault helicopters come and say, you know, Hulk, put the car down or we'll shoot you. You know, that doesn't help. That just creates more Hulk behavior. Um, Scarlett Johansson is what helps the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> a trusting person who can calm the Incredible Hulk. So when we think about crisis management, I really think about the art of distraction. What are some soothing things that might distract that individual from the thing that set them off? And I think about three categories of calming sort of distractors novel items, things they've never seen before that might grab their attention and get them away from the thing that's bothering them. So all of a sudden I bring out a gold coin that I got from Slovenia. Uh, I did some talks in Slovenia and I bring these gold coins back to the United States. And when kids are melting down, sometimes I say, hey, did I ever show you this gold coin? And piques their curiosity and shifts them out of that meltdown for a moment. So those are novel ways to distract. We can also look at special interests. All of us have some things that we like that are calming, that are interesting to us. So if I have a kid who loves uh, Walt Disney and all the you know, characters, maybe I have a book on Disney characters and at that moment of meltdown, let's, let's look at our Disney characters and that can be calming and soothing. Or it might be a sensory activity that just provides different sensory input that calms the individual. Uh, one very simple uh, common sensory input is food. You know, food, uh, sometimes people over rely on food, so we have to be careful, but food can be a very powerful way to shift people's mood when they're upset. You know, it provides a different kind of input all of a sudden to their system. Um, but, you know, music can do that exercise, different kind of sensory input can distract. So the point I'm saying is when someone's at their worst out of control behavior, it may not be a time to sort of threaten punishment or even rewards, it may be instead it's time to sort of, how do I calm you, right? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean we're rewarding a meltdown. Uh, if somebody's trying to avoid doing something, uh, we, we want them to understand they don't have to tantrum to get out of it. They can just say, I need a break. But if somebody's trying to avoid something then and all of a sudden you say, okay, let's watch your SpongeBob video, that could reward a tantrum. So instead what we wanna do is, um, is try to get them to ask for that break rather than tantrum for it, right? Um, but if somebody isn't trying to avoid something, they're just mad because somebody looked at them the wrong way or you went to the supermarket and you didn't buy them the snack that they wanted and they're tantruming, it's not rewarding a tantrum if all of a sudden you listen to their favorite music to calm them down. 
-hmm. You're not rewarding them by going and getting them the snack. You're just trying to get their mind off of it. So that's step two, crisis management. But the bulk of the book, uh, No More Meltdowns, is really about not just putting out fires, these sort of crisis management tools when you have the Incredible Hulk, but figuring out how to prevent the situation where the kid turns into the Incredible Hulk. That is, you have to learn what their triggers are. To answer the why question, why do they keep doing this? You have to find the things that trigger them. And I lay out seven very common categories of triggers in the No More Meltdown book with some sample pre prevention plans for all those different triggers. So I can go on, I can give you a list of those <laughs> triggers if that's yeah. helpful. First of all, I'm, I'm like taking notes. Um, it's so interesting because it's all on point and it's simple. And it's um, something that any mom, you know, you know, like uh, I've had a comment before. Yeah, but you're a teacher. Well, I'm also firstly a mom and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so just honestly, though, the what you just broke down for us in No More Meltdowns is is perfect. It's a it's a great place to start. And I I'm going to suggest that that this is a book that is a reference book for, for moms and to, to go through and look at what, you know, how to handle the Hulk and how to calm and what the triggers are. What is the why? Why is my child? Uh, I know Joseph had meltdowns in the grocery store a lot until I figured out, oh, it's because I forgot to go buy the balloons, you know? <laughs> it was a simple thing to solve, but yeah. it, it would cause a, a huge uh, meltdown. And so that that is perfect. Well, I'll say, Bridget, you know, you were a mother and a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do a lot of in-service trainings for schools where they'll pick up, a, you know, it's a, it's a $10 book on Amazon. Each of them get a, a No More Meltdown book as a reference for the challenges in their classrooms, too. So it's for both for parents and teachers of just sort of breaking down, hey, here, you know, it's, it's really helpful to have a map of potential triggers. Because when we ask that question, you know, why is my kid doing this? It's hard to know even where to start if it's a mystery. And if I've given you seven sort of categories of triggers and that's in your head, now you have at least a map of how to figure out, okay, what could have set this kid off? And when you talk about balloons in the grocery store for Joseph, you know, that might come at um, in that sort of category we call handling sort of disappointments when you don't get what you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's a major category. And so if you have that as a map and you're sort of going through, was it this, was it this, was it this? You start to ask, well, was, is there something he didn't get that's making him mad? Oh yeah, balloons, right? And it gives yeah. you a chance to try to get to the information a little quicker. Oh, absolutely. What I wouldn't have given for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely that, that map, right? Because a lot of times it feels very much like charades. Um, you know, you, you're just trying to guess what your child's trying to communicate. And then when the meltdown does occur, it's just kind of like, then I want to meltdown, right? I want to just grab him and run out of the store because everybody stops and stares and you get, then, then we go down that road. So yeah. Right. And then there are all those, you know, there's some people who say, oh, you're just spoil your kid yeah. and, you know, and they don't really get that, uh, 
you know, the, this important issue, I think, which is to sort of break down when discipline is useful and when it's not so useful. If you have someone who's very logical and regulated, yeah, you can take a sort of a tough love kind of approach and it'll work and it may be okay. But if you try to do that with someone who's emotionally dysregulated and not using logic in that moment, their Dr. Banner logic brain isn't there, it's likely going to make it worse. Yeah, and it does. It absolutely does. And then not only is your child trying to recover, but so so was I, you know, so is the mom or the parent. Bridget, would it be useful to give your readers a, like a quick and dirty explanation of those triggers? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think we have time to talk about the prevention plans for each of those triggers, yeah. but just to give them a map of like, what are we looking for? Yeah, I feel a teaching moment here. Go for it. <laughs> well, so so one of them is just sort of their the child's own internal state can be a trigger. Um, we suspect something's going on inside the kid when they're having more problematic behavior, like everywhere you take that kid that day. If everywhere you go, um, then it, the trigger is not the environment anymore. The trigger is like inside of them. They're bringing a higher level of problem everywhere. So things like tiredness, hunger, things like uh, pain. Uh, people who have GERD, gastroesophageal reflux, so many of our kids have gastrointestinal issues. Kids with um, difficulty with expressive language may not be able to tell you if they're having an ear infection, dental pain, headaches, migraines, other things. So that's one category. Another category are sensory issues um, where they're overwhelmed by too much stimulation. So that's a common issue for uh, many folks on the spectrum that there's too many people, too much noise. Um, but another problem, and especially for sort of kids with ADHD, is understimulation. Uh, you and I are, are, are talking to each other, and if we had a kid sitting and just listening to this, particularly one who has some language challenges, this would be incredibly boring. Uh, it would not be engaging enough to keep that kid's attention. And so sometimes we're looking in the, in the environment, if we are putting a kid in a place where we're just really boring them and not engaging them. Mm -hmm. The third um, trigger is uh, where there's no real structure. And for many of kids on the spectrum, that, that boils down to there not being enough visual supports to explain what was supposed to happen. Uh, one really good example for lots of kids on the spectrum early on in their lives in school is, is recess. Recess all of a sudden doesn't seem to have any obviously stated rules and visual aids to tell you where you're supposed to stand and be and what to do. Mm -hmm. um, we, we try to actually add structure for kids at recess. We'll set it up like an amusement park with signs that tell people where the activities are, where they stand to be in line, to be the next person to do that activity. But without structure, some kids are going to have, you know, lots of challenges. Mm -hmm. um, the fourth trigger is what we call um, a, a sort of demanding task. So all like, all schoolwork, reading and writing, you know, uh, can be a source of frustration if they're not sure how to deal with it. And I would chunk into that category sort of fears and phobias, um, you know, things that that create, you know, uh, a sense of anxiety. So like I had a kid who would never go outside during the summer because he was afraid of insects. And so he missed playtime with his friends every summer for that, you know. Um, the, the fifth category are sort of the category of disappointments where you don't get what you want, like Joseph not getting a balloon at the grocery store, um, or having to wait for something, 
having something canceled, a change in schedule. So it's raining out. So we don't get to go outside and play today. That kind of thing. Disappointments. Um, the sixth category are what I call threats to self-esteem. And these are things where, you know, um, things that make people feel bad about themselves, like being corrected, making a mistake, uh, losing a game, not being first, uh, somebody criticizing or potentially teasing. These are all potential threats to self-esteem, right? Um, and then the last category, number seven, is, you know, when people aren't getting the attention that they want. Um, and so the behavioral challenge is, is either because they're mad that they're being ignored or they're trying to get attention in ways that really sort of backfire, trying desperately to get people to like them by telling jokes that are actually provocative and upsetting. We, we call Sometimes we call these sensitive topics. I have a lot of kids who sort of obsess around, uh, you know, sex, violence, race, religion, and politics. Mm-hmm. And these, these are areas that can actually be really, you know, uh, get, get you a lot of attention, but sometimes make people uh, not want to be around you. Wow. I, I was just so engaged in, in that because I could see my son in every single one of those. How, how all of us can see ourselves. And these are, these are the kind of triggers. It's, you know, (laughs) I had a supervisor years ago, actually, who was somebody who worked with people with profound illnesses, psychosis, schizophrenia. And he said, Jed, listen, people with schizophrenia are just like everybody else, only more so. Mm -hmm. So the things that I'm talking about tend to be universal human stuff human issues, human themes. It's just that some people have more of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Uh, and I, I think too, it's that, um, at least from my experiences, is when it is triggered, it's the problem solving to get yourself out of that, right? How do I feel better? Because I noticed the processing, at least for Joseph, is is longer, right? It takes him a while to work himself through through each of these. Yeah, that is so helpful. Right. And sometimes mother- you can't work through it until until Dr. Banner Brain has returned, right? Like yeah. the, Hulk, yeah. the Hulk is not really great at learning. The Hulk has a very limited repertoire. Hulk smash, Hulk run, Hulk hide. Dr. Banner is the one who can really sort of break things down and figure out, oh, what could I have done differently? How do I, why did this happen? You know, so sometimes you have to get into a different state before you can do that work. Yes. So very, very helpful. And I know that there is a No More Meltdown app. How does that work? Yeah. So years ago, I partnered with some tech folks who created an app based on my No More Meltdowns book. And by the way, the No More Meltdowns book is now an audio book. It's digitalized, but the app is also a sort of skeleton version of the book. But the app also allows for people in real time using a smartphone or, or an iPad, any device, to keep track of challenging behaviors with their child in real time. Um, it's kind of stores the data into your smartphone and it asks you questions about the different potential categories of things that triggered your child, what their behavior was, what happened afterwards. And you can store that data and then upload it to a website called simtrend.com. 
this website will help you analyze, you know, over the course of a period of time when your kid did a, a certain kind of behavior, say they, are, they, they scream and run out of the classroom or they scream and run out of your house, you know, it will keep track of what the triggers were. It may say, you know, 80% of the time it's when your kid didn't get something they wanted immediately. And it let that for an example, right? And so then it would steer you to the prevention plan on sort of teaching kids how to wait. You know, what do you do to help kids be able to deal with not getting what they want immediately? You know, like using visual timers and schedules and teaching them if they wait, they can get much more of what they want rather than, you know, uh, not at all. So um, it kind of steers you to the right prevention plan. That's how that that app works. Wow. Uh, another great add-on tool for, for moms out there, for parents. I would like to go while we're talking about strategies and tools for meltdowns and anxiety you know right now as we're recording this we're in the midst of COVID-19 and I just got done doing a very short but helpful series uh, offering tools to moms out there who are going through the COVID-19 with their kids on and off of the spectrum, right? Because some some families have a uh, typical learners and others are struggling with uh, kids on the spectrum and not getting their therapies and all the added stress that we already have, it, it's added up and it's, it's a really hard time right now. Yeah. Uh, would you like to speak on, on anxiety and what we're going through maybe right now, some helpful yeah, sure. I, I'm, you know, we're in the midst of it here in New Jersey is where I am and suburb of New York City. So I think the states know what, what this part of the country has been like. It's been very challenging and, and, and uh, very much so for my, for everybody, but uh, for my clients in particular. So as I've been talking to folks about it, I mean, one step is to sort of make sure that we can explain it to kids. And there's some interesting picture stories on the Autism Society of America's website, as well as Autism Speaks website, picture stories about uh, COVID-19 to maybe help explain to someone with some language challenges, kind of like my social skill picture books, but it's kind of a cartoon version to help people understand the need for social distance and washing hands and why we're not in school and such. Um, but what, one of the things that happens when you explain COVID to folks, you know, um, is there's this fallout, uh, anxiety. Am I going to get it? Will my loved ones get it? What's going to happen to us? That's one challenge, right? And another challenge is um, being frustrated over having to stay home and not get to see the people they used to see. Uh, or do the activities they used to do. And I guess a third issue is like uh, the demand all of a sudden on parents to somehow replace some of these therapies and supports that they're not necessarily trained to do nor necessarily have the time if they're also trying to to work. So let, let's just talk about anxiety for a second. Um, in my book, Overcoming Anxiety, we talk about different ways that people can sort of manage their anxiety about, uh, you know, whatever they're worried about, including, so let's, let's apply it to COVID, right? First of all, it's important to pe for people to be educated about how anxiety works. That incredible Hulk that we have inside of us is our alarm system. We do need it because if a car is coming to hit us, 
we want the Hulk to get us out of there, fight, flight, or freeze. We need that. But sometimes we have that Hulk reaction, that fight, flight, or freeze, and it's a false alarm. And the thing about COVID, right, is COVID can cause shortness of breath, a tight feeling in the chest. Well, that's what anxiety does too, causes shortness of breath and a tight feeling. And so it's important for people to know if they have that symptom, that doesn't automatically mean they have COVID. That certainly could be anxiety. We want to make sure they're not having a fever and they don't, their oxygen levels are good and all of those kinds of things. Um, So I think it's important just to do a little education uh, about our alarm system and that, you know, we, anxiety can cause these false alarms. Um, One way to combat anxiety sort of out of control worry um, is what we call cognitive behavior therapy, which is really about having people learn to think like a scientist. Scientists don't just sort of believe things because they have a feeling about it. Um, Scientists get evidence. And so that's one way we sort of combat uh, our out of control worry is like we look at evidence. And there's two questions that we ask when people are sort of worried, am I going to get COVID? Will my loved ones, what's going to happen? We ask, are you overestimating the probability of something bad happening, like getting COVID? And are you overestimating the severity? How bad would it be? So, You know, the probability may be different depending on what part of the country you live in. But one of the things that we can do to really lower the probability is, you know, social distancing works. Um, Proper, you know, uh, face masks and other kinds of protective gear work. Washing your hands before touching your face works. Um, So these are things we can do to really that's what we're in control of. We can lower that probability. And then the other issue, are we overestimating the severity? How bad would it be if we got it? You know, I have two kids and and, um, they're supposed to go back to college in the fall and we don't know if that's happening, but I kind of looked at the risks by age, right? It's incredibly low for 15 to 24 year olds. The risk of um, having a severe illness from COVID is, is just incredibly low. In fact, as of May 6th, when I looked this up, there were 48 deaths in the 15 to 24 year old range and 41 deaths for people with influenza. So at that age, it's no more deadly than influenza. At my age, I'm 55 now, it's quite different. It's, it's much, you know, but even at my age, the risk of having a severe illness from COVID is incredibly low, although it's much, much higher than influenza. So doing a little scientific thinking can sort of help us to manage the out of control worry. Exercise is a huge uh, anxiety reducer. We have lots of data uh, on that. So it's important to be doing some kind of 30 plus minutes a day of aerobic exercise. Meditation, quieting the mind. And and, and part of that is also like just not looking at the news (laughs) for a while. Yeah. Um, You know, because it can be really traumatizing. Um, when I look at mindfulness meditation, I don't just think about meditation guides. I think about people's special interests, you know, because what you like doing becomes meditative. It, meditation is about focusing in on the moment. Mindfulness, anyway, is about focusing on the, on the moment so we don't keep doing that ruminative worry cycle. And so if your thing is to bake uh, or to do artwork or to, to, to make music, and that helps you focus. And so your mind isn't ruminating on your worry. That's meditative. Lastly, look, medications can be an important tool and can be temporary tools. They don't have to be forever. 
um, to, to manage anxiety. When I think about, you know, how do we help people to stay at home? That's another issue, aside from the anxiety, just the anger and the frustration about that. How do I motivate some folks who are really struggling with that? I have a 35-year-old uh, client on the spectrum. He's living with his parents, and he's very, very angry that he can't go to his program, that he can't see his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we talked about how he is being heroic by staying away from his girlfriend because he's contributing to not spreading the virus to her, her family, or to him. And so, so using the concept of being heroic, I think has, has helped him. We have to give him the alternatives. Like he can have a life. I have a 50 year old client on the spectrum who's really gets really depressed about all this being home, uh, not working and not seeing his friends. And, but he realized yesterday in a zoom session that I had with him that he really can have about 80% of his life back. He can see his friends, but he's going to have to remain over six feet from them. Um, you know, if he's in, inside uh, six feet away, maybe he wear, he should be wearing a mask. Right. And if he's uh, outside, maybe uh, if he's 10 feet away, he may not, he may be able to pull the mask down for a little bit too. Um, so he can be with them. Um, he can uh, still exercise, which he does every day. So there's lots of alternatives that he can continue to do. Um, the piece about getting, getting people, you know, parents have to help their kids sort of continue to learn at home when their teachers aren't there. Parents don't always have all, all those sort of teacher skills. You, you do, Bridget. You were a teacher. So, but not everybody, not everybody is. And so, first of all, it's really useful to create a visual schedule to get some like ballpark of what we're going to try to do today, just to set expectation. That's got to be a flexible schedule, though. You can't, you know, force people to do things, you know, in, a, in exact time frames. Um, but, you know, I think it's useful to have a visual schedule so that the child sort of has some expectation. And it really has to be a mix of what their normal life was like. It shouldn't be all schoolwork. Mm-hmm. schedule should have like social life. You know, I, my, my adult that I mentioned to you, who's mad about being home, like every evening we, he, he's part of an adult social skill group that I run and we have a zoom chat on Mondays. So during the week, Tuesday through, you know, Sunday, he picks one person he'll have a zoom chat with each night. That's on the schedule. You know, so he, he has that connection. Yeah. Um, ex- exercises on the schedule and, and some sort of making meals together and playing some games with his family is on the schedule. Like we want people to have a big life, but how do we help people do things they don't want to do? Like a lot of, a lot of kids don't want to do their schoolwork. And so, you know, one thing that I think we can do is try to make non-preferred school tasks a lot less scary. So instead of doing, you know, 10 sentences, we, we shorten it. We're going to do two sentences or we're just going to work for five minutes on a timer and then we take a break. So if it doesn't look as intimidating, people will actually come to the table. The one thing I think I'd like to share with you too is, is some work from Carol Dweck that I think is really so important for our folks on the spectrum, especially verbal folks on the spectrum. So many people feel when they've had any kind of disability if they can't do something, they feel dumb. And that is a huge 
demotivator. If I feel like oh, I, I'm, I'm dumb if I can't do this, then I don't want to approach it. I'm not even going to try it. And I'm going to quit if I make a mistake. And Carol Dweck's research on growth mindset sort of shows that if you teach people that you're not dumb if you don't understand something, that that's part of the learning process. You're not supposed to know things. That you grow over time by trying things and asking for help. That effort and willingness to ask for help is how you learn. And so you're trying to convince people that the only way to learn is to do things they don't quite know yet. And you will make a mistake. And so that doesn't mean you're not smart. That means you're about to learn. Like mistakes key you in to the thing that you need to work on. Yeah, yeah. And and then, and getting help doesn't mean you're weak and incompetent. Getting help means you're intelligent. That's what smart people do to learn. And so if you can get this into somebody's head before they struggle with work, hey man, we're about to do this math. By the way, you're not supposed to know this. So we might make some mistakes and that's good. That means we're learning and then we're gonna get some help to learn it, right? Now. I wouldn't rush into the most difficult work. I use the 80-20 rule. 80% of what they can do easily before the 20% that's difficult. Give, give, build confidence first. Yeah, um, I love that. So, you know, if you, if you can sort of front load it with easier items first to build confidence, that's good. But also you have to sort of set the right mind frame for them that, hey, you're not supposed to know this. We're learning it over time and we learn, you know, so I hope you make a mistake because if you make a mistake, that means you're learning. And what I do with lots of my students is I tell them, if you make a mistake with your work and then you get help and you learn from it, that's going to be worth more points on a reward chart than if you get the work done the right the first, the first time. So you get more points, more rewards for making a mistake and handling it than getting it right the first time. And so in that way, we reward the process of learning rather than rewarding the outcome. Mm, I absolutely love that. That is a a big picture life skill right there, right? Because um, I coach a lot of moms and one of the things, you know, it's hard to ask for help, right? It's just hard. And and so I I absolutely love that. I'm going to use that. (laughs) I'm writing that down. Well, you know, people who approach life with curiosity, openness, modesty, uh, uh, and a willingness to seek guidance from others, um, those are the ones who really learn the most, who grow the most. Yeah, yeah. I, I think sometimes, not, not sometimes, in our culture, um, you know, asking for help may, may feel like a weakness, but if, you know, kids on the spectrum for sure anybody asking for help is it is growth it absolutely is well you know and when my kids you know the kids that i see on the spectrum who transition to say a post-secondary school college one of the single most key predictors of their ability to succeed in college is their willingness to seek out help to Mm -hmm. sort of to learn to know what they don't know and to get help for it. Yeah. yeah. You know. and, and knowing that that's okay. It's okay not to know, I think, is what I see so much is that it's just uh, maybe they feel embarrassed or 
you know, afraid to be wrong. It, it just really depends on, on. Well, and who blames them, right? Because <laughs> you grow up in, no, if you grow up in an environment where people have teased you or people have snickered because you got a special ed help or whatever, you know, if, if the kids aren't taught at an early age that the person who goes out for extra help isn't dumb, but might be the next Albert Einstein or Bill Gates or Temple Grandin or Marie Curie or Mozart, you know, or Thomas Edison, all of whom had learning differences and some on the spectrum. If nobody's teaching people that, then we end up stigmatizing getting help rather than understanding that, you know, this is how this person is going to grow and may in fact make the next invention that sort of cures COVID. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are great, great tools and tips, not only for learning, but for life, how to, how to move forward, right, in our struggles as, as we're going through this time, right, of COVID-19, but also when, when our life tsunamis hit us, you know, when we get hit with stuff that it's, it's absolutely okay to ask for help and moving forward in our lives, yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's more than okay. It's yeah. Yeah. it 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 is actually one of the key components to successful outcome in actual scientific research. Like you don't have to take it on faith. Your listeners don't have to take it on faith from from what you just said or from what I just said. They can look at the scientific research. People who seek out help have better outcomes. Mm. Yeah. They learn more. They succeed further in wherever they are, whether it's business, education, music, athletics, people who seek guidance, seek help, are not weak. They end up being the ones who succeed further. I've heard that the acronym for help is Hello, Ever Loving Presence. So I have often said that help is a prayer too, you know, so there is the scientific data and then also there's the side of it that lets you know that, um, I don't know, it's comforting, right? The emotional comfort for asking for help. Yeah. Well, and speaking of acronyms, we often use the acronym of hope since we know hope leads to better outcome with kids. Mm-hmm. The, the acronym for hope is hold on pain ends, mm-hmm. which, which all of us need to sort of keep in mind during this COVID crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I love, yeah, I love that. We're we're having to hold on for a lot longer than we thought we might have to, and you know, it, we're we're in for we're in for having to be pretty patient. But mm-hmm. there is an end. But we're going to have to have a lot of patience. Yeah, and and we're um, having these conversations are helpful. I know they help me. Hearing everything you just said is is very helpful. Anybody listening to this. This is offering hope for them as well. I would like to know what what you have learned from working with the autism community because we're we're both you're you're teaching you're giving so much. What have you learned? Well, you know, it's interesting your story about your son Joseph and uh, some of the language and echolalia he had early on and where he's where he's at now. And one of the lessons I learned sort of early on was to never, never underestimate a student. Um, and we actually know hope leads to better outcome with teaching too and in, in education. There's a, 
there was a study years ago, it's unethical to do this now, but a study years ago called Pygmalion in the Classroom, and they told teachers, we've divided up your class into two groups. We put the sort of high IQ group on one side, the low IQ group on the other, go ahead and teach them. And at the end of the year, the high IQ group not only had better grades in the classroom, but better standardized uh, scores. Now, the truth was, they were randomly selected to the groups. There wasn't a high IQ and low IQ group. But if teachers believe that one group is smarter, they keep teaching to that group. And if they believe another group doesn't have the capability, they kind of give up on their effort to keep teaching that group because, oh, maybe this kid won't get it anyway. And that's an important lesson, just as all the lessons families um, have taught me over time of kids who had very limited language. And yet there were skills that they had that maybe were, you know, not easily visible early on. And to never sort of underestimate that a kid doesn't understand what you're saying or isn't going to be able to um, have sort of a big life. I remember one family who the youngster didn't have language early on and, you know, very concrete in many ways. And, um, but mom was a force of nature, maybe like you, Bridget, you know, and she just, she just had big dreams for her kid. And, and so he, he is conversational now. Uh, and this is a kid who had no language early on, who now was able to negotiate independently a train ride from New Jersey into Penn Station in New York and from New York Penn Station take a subway to a bakery where he decorated cakes because he had some pretty interesting artistic ability mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and has a very big life doing that and also teaching art to young kids yeah, um, and that. selling his artwork. And, and so that's one lesson. The other lesson I learned is that, you know, socializing is a two-way street. Peter Gerhardt, as another colleague of mine, taught me this lesson early on, that instead of spending all my time trying to sort of teach kids how to fit in, sometimes you have to teach others how to reach out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so a lot of my work shifted then to how do we teach, you know, peers to be more understanding, accepting, and engaging of our kids on the spectrum? How do you teach employers to sort of, be able to see the value of hiring somebody with autism. Um, how do we create autism-friendly environments? You know, and, and that's a that's a real shift. In, yeah. You know, from from trying to get kids with autism to be like everybody else, they don't have to be like everybody else. You know, but we have to do equal work to get you know other folks to be understanding, engaging of, of our of our folks. I so agree with that. Yeah, I I am completely 100% on board with that. I know that that's something that Joseph has shared with me as well. You know, it's like he uh, he sees the world so beautifully. And really, and I've said this and I'll continue to say it, he's been my best teacher. <laughs> it's not always, you know, get a, get a fix-it kit and try to fix them because... Uh, Yes, they need these skills. Yes, they need the help. All, all of the things we've been talking about. But if we'll just open up, I know that uh, we can learn so much from, 
from the differences and the beautiful minds that they that they offer us. Yeah. Well, like you said, it makes us better people. Oh, yes. And we can become more flexible. Yeah. He's my uh, my inspiration. I know that. Um, so I also would love to know what your hope is for the future for the autism community. Well, to piggyback on what we were just talking about, I, my hope is that um, we are able to to sort of develop more autism friendly communities. You know, we, we try to do that in schools. Sometimes it can be mandated in a school, but less so in the employment world and the sort of post-school world. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice for there to be, you know, more opportunities for employment, more opportunities for supportive living, more opportunities for recreational, meaningful, engaging recreational uh, program so people can have a sort of full, rich, uh, socially embedded life in, through adulthood. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yes, and that is that is also uh, my hope. And I think doing this this podcast is part of what you know, offering hope out there that we've talked about throughout the podcast. So I hope this this work keeps going. I know for myself, I'm going to just keep going as long as as I can. And my hunch is that you're going to continue with your awesome, awesome contribution to our community as well. Um, I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. I plan on doing it as long as I can do it. (laughs) Um, Is there anything you'd like to mention before we go? You know, we spoke uh, a little bit before about just independent adults. You know, I, I'm just finding that during, like during the COVID crisis, for example, I have a number of clients on the spectrum who are living independently because, you know, they're pretty high functioning and able and capable. And yet, you know, the changes that the COVID crisis has, uh, has put upon us, um, there may not have been uh, folks supporting these more independent adults on, you know, what do you need at home? Like, how are you going to get groceries right now when things are closed? You know, do you know how to do online delivery? So uh, depending on where you are in the country, I know you're in Arkansas, but here, you know, a lot of places, it's hard to get groceries now here. We have to get things delivered. takes a long time, you know, so we need some of our adults to have a plan, almost a handbook that I sort of try to create for some of my adults. Um, What do I do if I get sick? Who do I call? Is I mean, can I still go to the doctor? And a lot of our doctors are doing telemedicine out here in New Jersey, so they need to know how to do that. Do I have a thermometer at home in case I have a fever? Do I have uh, uh, medicines that I need if I if I if I can't go to the pharmacy for a while? So we just need them to have that sort of handbook and and the protocols for you know making sure that they neither spread nor get COVID you know, from hand washing to having a mask to the social distancing. A lot of people haven't had that conversation with some of these independent adults because they're not getting sort of the the same level of support services as other folks are. Yeah, that's really great to mention because um, that that's one of those things, right? That, you know, is part of problem solving when things get thrown at you. And I know that, that's something that I also see in my son. And once he gets it, he's got it. But to have that, to have a guideline, to 
have those steps laid out, I think would really, really be beneficial for anybody right now living with autism that needs that. So is there like, where can people go find out more like about you, connect yeah. with you, all these wonderful things that you shared with us today? Uh, well, so my books that we talked about um, are on Amazon is probably the less ex- least expensive place to get them and to get them quickly. Um, so there's an Amazon author page under Jed Baker. And if you, if you can find that author page, which sometimes for some reason, it just brings up the books without the actual author page, but the author page also has some interesting videos. Um, so you, for free that you can just kind of check out from ABC and Nightline and other things, um, that we did. So, uh, that's one place. And then, um, my publisher had set up just my name, jedbaker.com, www.jedbaker.com for access to some of my books and other materials. My private practice uh, website, uh, so the clinic that I have in New Jersey is uh, www.socialskillstrainingproject.com. That's socialskillstrainingproject.com. Uh, and that has information about how you can contact me as well if you if you wanted to uh, contact me directly for for a talk or for services or whatever you might need. Perfect. It's been such a privilege and honor again. Um, you've been such a great inspiration and help for personally for me and my son. And now um, the fact that you've been on our podcast is. A, a feeling of full circle for Joseph and I. So I thank you so much, Dr. Baker, for sharing your knowledge and expertise to help all of us living with autism, but especially parents and mother guides listening. Well, and back to you. I thank you. If it wasn't for folks like you, I'd be unemployed. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate all that you do for the community, for your son, for yourself, but for the for the world. So thank you, Bridget. Uh, It's our honor. Definitely our honor. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review and share it on social media. You can download my free guide, Five Things I Wish I Knew Raising My Son with Autism, by going to my website, bmvlifecoach.com. Also, please join our Facebook group, Mother's Guide Through Autism, to get support. I'm sending you all hope and love. Thanks so much for listening.